0: Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest DeVinny, I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thank you for joining us. Happy New Year. We hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of scripture, and it might be a little entertaining as well. So let's get started. Now, this is, of course, the first podcast of the new year, and Um, That means it's got to be a little bit different because we spent 2022 reading through the entire Bible in a year, which was, I loved it. It was awesome. And and part of the goal of doing that was not only to just, you know, get people into the habit of reading their Bibles, but also to help engender a love of scripture into people who perhaps didn't have that love before. Uh, You know, so many people, so many Christians really only read a handful of verses at a time, and they kind of just read the same parts of the Bible over and over again, and so they don't know the Bible very well, and that's a problem. The Bible is the primary means through which God speaks to us. The Bible is the, the ultimate source of, of truth. Uh, so it's good for us to know what it says, it's good for us to be familiar with it, to, to immerse ourselves in the stories of scripture and to understand it well. And so uh, reading the Bible in a year, I think was was helpful. Um, We have started new Bible reading plans for 2023. Um, I've got actually just about the whole year planned out everything except for the season of Advent, for which I'm going to do something a little different. But we're starting the year off with 90 days reading through the Gospels. That will take us... um, right up to Holy Week, just about, not not quite, but almost there, and then we're going to spend nine days slowly reading through the Gospel of Mark as we come up through Holy Week to Easter. Then after Easter, we're going to read, uh, we're going to spend 60 days reading through the letters of Paul, and that will take us to June the 9th, and then beginning on June the 9th, we're going to start reading through the Torah, uh, the, the first Five books of the Old Testament, the the Jewish Bible. Uh, We'll we'll spend 100 days, by the way, reading through the Torah. And I'm actually really excited about that because, you know, you read those books last year, but it is so valuable to kind of slowly read through them and, and begin to understand how those books uh, are not only shape the Jewish worldview, but should also shape our understanding of the world and humanity and God. Um, because they're vital, vital books. And, and, you know, the early Christians, of course, did not have Gospels written down yet. They read the Torah. Uh, so it's good for us to read. Then that'll, that'll take us to uh, mid-September, at which point we're going to spend two weeks reading through the wisdom books of the Old Testament. And then when that's done, we'll have two months reading through the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and that will take us up to Advent. So that's the plan for this year. Now it sounds like a lot, but the reality is in the wake of reading through the entire Bible every single year, your daily readings are quite a bit shorter. In fact, right now to get through the gospel in 90 days, you are reading through one chapter a day. So if you started on January 1st, you would have started in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, I'm recording this on January the 4th. So we've read Matthew chapter 4 today. Really simple, fast, easy reading plan. You may even decide that uh, because it's such a short amount of reading compared to what you're used to, you may decide you want to, to read more. I I mean, I literally just talked to someone who, who said they've, they've had it on a second reading plan because they didn't feel like they were reading uh, enough. And, and to be perfectly honest, I've done that myself. I'm reading through Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, with all of you, but I'm also reading through the book of Genesis. Uh, And because I'm a super nerd, I'm doing that in two different translations. I'm reading the Gospel in the English Standard Version, and I'm reading Genesis in the very old, almost out-of-print revised Standard Version from the 1950s, which is lovely. Uh, And that actually brings me, by the way... Well, I'll I'll get to that in a minute. First, one of the reasons why... I I, I actually am excited about doing a less intense reading plan right now is um, you've gone through the whole thing now. You've kind of had this, it's it's like drinking from a fire hose. Now you're going to get to go deeper. And so I would encourage you as you read, read slowly. Read slowly. Prayerfully,
1: you may even
0: choose uh, to adopt the the practice of lectio divina, divine reading. Uh, it's an it's an ancient practice of the church that's involved it involves prayerfully reading the scriptures. And, and um, I don't I don't know that I have time to go into it here in this podcast, but but simply look it up lectio divina and, and see if that may be something you want to practice as you're reading through relatively short passages of scripture prayerfully, but the idea is to go deeper in 2023 than we did last year. Last year we did, we covered a lot of territory really fast, and it was a lot of fun. This year we're going to try and go deeper. And before we go into that, I want to talk for a little bit about Bibles and Bible translations. Because uh, last year I, I handed out Bibles and um, for everyone to use as part of this reading plan so that you didn't have to kind of keep consulting a calendar and looking at what to read because it was a lot of reading to, to keep up with. And so we handed out these one-year Bibles that are, that are printed in a way where each, so that each day has all the readings for that day. It's easy to follow. Um, this year, it's a bit different. You have to get your own Bible or use your own app or whatever you want to do. Uh, and so you, you have some choices you have to make. Now, um, first off, there, there are lots of wonderful Bible apps out there. I've already said this Bible reading plan is available in the version app, which is far and away the most widely used uh, Bible app in the world, to my knowledge. Um, I, I personally like to use uh, Logos Bible software, which has digital copies of the Bible in many different translations. It's got its own reading plans. It's also got it's also, I mean, a, a digital library. It's got all kinds of commentaries and books, and and um, it's even it's not, that's actually the software I use when I'm putting together my sermons. When you see me with my iPad out there on Sunday morning, I'm um, in Logos. It's got a thing called Preaching Mode, where it can just show me the parts of my notes I want to see. Uh, so I, I value the digital Bibles for for some things, but I, I let me tell you folks, I I don't. Think there is any real good replacement for a nice physical Bible? You may disagree, and that's fine. And, and if you want to just read uh, the Bible in the U version app, by all means, go ahead read the Bible. But I think there is something really and truly valuable about having a hard copy Bible. I love it, and and this is where it's going to get weird for some of you. My my honest advice. Is to go out and buy a really, really nice Bible, an expensive Bible. You can find Bibles all over for dirt cheap. You can buy them for like four bucks at Mardell probably. Um, little paperback Bibles—they're not expensive. Uh, you can buy them in all kinds. Of, but but I am telling you, there is something about having a a really, really nice handcrafted leather-bound Bible that makes you want to sit down and read it. And I'm all about anything that encourages you to sit down and read it. And there's also something to be said, I think, for these, these very beautiful artistic expressions of, of the book. right? That, that, that someone has taken the time to take God's word and, and print it on high-quality paper and bind it by hand in high-quality leather. And, and it's, it's an expression of love and gratitude and respect for what the Bible represents, but it's also something that's going to last forever. So I I highly recommend going and looking at different publishers. Um, Zondervan has uh, a lot of very nice Bibles. They're a big publisher. Crossway has a lot of very nice Bibles. Um, Anyway, that's my two cents. I highly, highly value a really nice Bible because it makes you want to just spend time with that Bible reading it uh, and any, anything that gets you to sit down with the Bible more, I think it's a good thing. Um, now let's talk about translations for a little bit. Last year, the Bibles I handed out were the NIV, the New International Version. And because that's the Bible I handed out, that was the Bible I preached from all through 2022. Uh, now the NIV is far and away the best-selling English translation of the Bible. It has been uh, since like 1984, when the first version of it was released, uh, nothing's really overtaken it. And there's a good reason for that. It's a very easy-to-read translation. Um, it's, it's really reliable, frankly. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a solid translation of the Bible. If you like reading the NIV, which is what we read for the past year, uh, by all means, keep reading the NIV. It's solid. It's reliable. It's a good translation of the Bible. If I have one bone to pick with it, it's that um, the Bible is, well, it's literature. It is, it's not a textbook. It's not a guidebook. It's literature. It's a story. And when you read older translations, the the best part of the King James Version of the Bible is that the translators, as they were working on it, had a commitment to to communicating in their translation the literary beauty that was already present in the original languages. And so the King James Version is just gorgeous. It's got this wonderful cadence and rhythm and and poetry to it, even in the non-poetic parts of it. And so it's just beautiful. Um, it is unfortunately impossible for modern people to understand. It's 400 years old. Um, a good number of the words in the English language have quite literally changed their meaning since then, and so if you read the KJV now, um, you you won't understand what it says. It, it is it is almost in effect a different language than modern English. So I don't recommend reading the King James version, and I don't particularly like the New King James version, which is the modern update of it. I think that's a very difficult translation to read. Uh, it's it's not that great. And my in my personal, some people like it. I don't it I don't have a problem with it in terms of accuracy. I just think it's unpleasant to read. Um, But the King James has this incredible beauty, and when you compare it to the New International Version, uh, a lot of that beauty is gone. Uh, A friend of mine describes it as kind of sterile, Um, especially the Psalms. The Psalms in the NIV can be very sort of sterile sounding. And the Psalms are this gorgeous, beautiful, poetic prayer that should be just breathtaking in their beauty. And so there are some issues I have with the NIV, not with the accuracy of the translation, but with the way it is written. Um, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about other translations that are available. Now, in the Methodist world, a lot of people like the New Revised Standard Version, which was first published in 1989. That's the translation I was using in seminary because it's, very, it's a very popular translation in academic circles. Um, and if you can find the original text, the, the 1989 version of the NRSV, I think it's quite solid. It's a good translation. It's not too difficult to read. Uh, It's very accurate, very reliable. It's, it's well done. Um, It is unfortunately about to be out of print because the, the group responsible for that translation, which is uh, a shoot off of the World Council Churches have, they updated it last year and you'll see that listed as the NRSV uh, UE updated edition. Um, And, and that update is absolutely terrible. I, I, I don't, don't get it. It's, it's, Almost impossible. One, they've changed the wording of a lot of it in, in a way that makes it very difficult and unpleasant to read. So it loses any of the poetic beauty that it had. And it had already sacrificed quite a bit of that in, in the interest of accuracy and readability. Um, so the NRC UE is really difficult to read compared to other ones. But more, more worryingly, there are places where... Um, Words have been mistranslated and, and intentionally so, uh, and if it's bad enough that I, who know virtually no Greek and Hebrew, can spot the mistranslation, I am very concerned about where else there might be mistranslations. Uh, and, and you know, every Bible is going to be different. No translation is perfect, but to see something that is almost certainly an intentional mistranslation of words in service of a particular agenda is really troubling. And and um. The word, by the way, it's in Paul's letters, and, and Paul uses a word um, in his letters that is, uh, the Greek word is arsenokoites, and it's it's actually a word that Paul makes up. It's it's not, it's, it's not, you wouldn't find it in any dictionary of his day. It's a portmanteau of two different words that he slaps together, and the literal translation is man betters. Um, and that has been translated in various ways in other translations over the years. Older translations will will use the word sodomite. Um, newer translations, for obvious reasons, tend to use different words. They'll use um, they'll use the blanket term homosexuals. They'll use the word. They'll use a phrase like men who. Uh, I think the NIV the NIV which we read last year actually translates translates it as men who have sex with men. Um, Either way, um, that's what it means. It refers to men who are having sex with other men. And the reason why he made up his own word for that is because in ancient Greek, there are actually a number of different words that describe um, homosexual relationships, but they all have a distinct connotation. So there's different words for um, an adult man sleeping with a young boy, which in Greek culture was extremely common, almost universal. Um, it was just kind of expected that every man was doing that. Uh, so there's a specific word for that. There's a specific word for male temple prostitutes in certain religious cults, um, and and Paul is using that this word because he's he's trying to be very explicit that he's not referring to those sorts of exploitative relationships, but he is very clearly referring to. Um, the much more common, much more generalized consensual same-sex relationships where there's no exploitation going on. Um, and to be clear, there, there absolutely were gay marriages in Paul's day. That's, that's a matter of historical record. No one who actually knows what they're talking about would deny that. Um, and he's he's using this catch-all term to describe, say, Look, it doesn't matter even if this is a, a perfectly acceptable culturally consensual relationship, this is what I'm talking about. Um, And and almost every Bible translation acknowledges that, and and really every respectable Bible scholar acknowledges that as well. Um, You'll have a whole lot of progressive Bible scholars who will say, well, yes, this is, of course, what Paul's talking about. We can't deny it. We simply disagree with Paul. Um, And I can respect that position. There are some who are not respectable Bible scholars who just try and argue their way around that point and say that's not what he's talking about. But they're they're delusional, frankly. Um, and, and so what the NRSVUE has done is it's taken that term "arsenokoitès" and it has it has translated as um, "immoral men," which is very obviously not what Paul meant. Um, it is, it is just flat out an intentional mistranslation in an attempt to, um, I think really just to try and make the, those passages more palatable to the modern reader, but it's, it's an intentional mistranslation. And so that's, that's the one I can spot because I'm familiar with that wording, um, but it makes me wonder just how reliable the rest of that translation is. So I don't recommend the, the update to the NRSV. I would avoid it if you can. Um, there are other translations that are phenomenal, uh, I've already said the NIV is great. If you like the NIV, stick with it. Um, the English Standard Version, the ESV, is, is one of my personal favorites. It's it's extremely easy to read, but it is still a more literal translation than the NIV, and it retains a lot more of the literary beauty of the old texts that, than the NIV does. And so to me, I, I just prefer it over the NIV. It's It's... This is sound it sounds more biblically. Um, it, it just keeps the cadence and the rhythm of the older translations, and so it feels more like the the older translations that many many of us grew up with. Um, it's very accurate, and very reliable, but it's very but again, it's easy to read. I think it's like a tenth grade reading level or something. Um, so you should have no trouble reading it. If you want to pick up a copy of the ESV, um, it's one of the it's it's not far behind the NIV in popularity. So you you have probably heard it. Preached from before. I'll be preaching from it some this year. I'll kind of go back and forth between the ESV and the NIV uh, because I do like both. But the ESV is definitely the the more beautiful of the two translations. It's this really nice compromise between um, readability and and accuracy and literary beauty. Um, You'll also see a lot of people pushing the New American Standard Bible, which, which got an update in 2020. Um, and unlike the NRSV, the 2020 update of the NASB is really good. Um, the New American Standard Bible is extremely literal, uh, meaning that um, not necessarily so much the the translation of the word is, is always perfectly literal, but in, in a lot of places, they've actually kept the, um, the grammatical structure of the Greek and the Hebrew, which is very, very different from English, and, and so it can be a really... Difficult translation to read, and in all honesty, it, it's uh, it comes it, it kind of comes off as a little wooden, a little stiff. I don't particularly care for it. A lot of people, a lot of seminary students like it because when they're studying the Greek and Hebrew, um, the it, it's just really easy for them to look at the NASB and and and, and see the the. The accuracy of the translation both in terms of the words themselves but also in terms of the sentence structure and so it helps them as they're working learning their greek and hebrew but for most people who just want to read the bible and understand what it means i don't think the nasb is the best option because it just is more difficult to read the esv and the niv are both easier to read and they're just as accurate i think so um there's some other options out there some people like the nlt the new living translation which is which is Probably the single easiest to read translation. What I would point out, just just as a word of caution, the word translation in the title there is is not accurate. It's it's a paraphrase is what the NLT is. It's it's a paraphrase of the Bible, kind of like the Message, um, and so um, it's a good paraphrase. To be clear, I, I think it's actually better than the Message in most ways. In terms of, it's not it's closer to to a translation than the Message, but it's still a paraphrase of the Bible. It it. It's a great, great tool for modernizing what the Bible says and helping you kind of bridge that gap between some of the texts that are harder to read and what our own understanding is. But I don't know that I would rely on it as my only translation of the Bible just because, again, it's, it's it was not done with the intention of accuracy to the original text, and so it can be a bit off in places, but it's it's easy to read especially if you're looking at maybe getting something for your children or your teenagers. The New Living Translation is going to be easy for them to follow along with, and so it's good for that purpose. Um, And the same kind of goes for the Christian Standard Bible, which is uh, also, again, a fairly modern translation, fairly easy to read. Um, It sort of has this reputation as like the Baptist version of the NIV, and and that's not far off. Uh, It is... As far as I as far as I can tell, every translator who worked on the Christian Standard Bible was a, a Baptist theologian, and and for the and the the difference, by the way, is that if you look at the ESV and the NIV, and you look at the the team of translators who worked on it and who continue to work on them because they get updates every few years sometimes, um, what you'll see is a really broad range of people from different backgrounds. Um, you know, the ESV had. Baptists, it had Anglicans, it had Catholics, it had uh, Presbyterians and Lutherans and, and people of all different Christian backgrounds working on that translation. The idea being that, of course, the, the, the more diverse the translation committee, um, the, the more accurate the translation because you're not going to be suffering from uh, excessive bias in one direction or another. The NIV is the same way, you'll actually see several Methodist theologians on the list for that one, Uh, as well as many Anglicans, Baptists, uh, Pentecostals, uh, I think even a few Catholics here and there. Um, The original NRSV translation committee from the 1980s had um, not just Anglicans and and Protestants and Catholics, but also Eastern Orthodox and even Jewish theologians working on it. Uh, So most Bible translation committees, they they cast as wide a net as possible. Uh, And the CSB I don't think did. Be wrong, but anyway, but it's it's not like it's a terrible translation, it's just it's definitely a distinctly Baptist translation of the Bible. Um, but if you like it, it's solid. Go ahead and read it. Um, and if you happen to have any old Bibles lying around, you might check and see what they are. Because I will tell you right now, my absolute all-time favorite translation of the Bible is the revised standard version from the 1950s. Um, it is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it's you know, it's, it's exceedingly accurate by the way it's one of the most accurate translations I think that's ever been done. Um, and it had a translation committee that, that included people of all different backgrounds, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, uh, you know Anglican, Baptist, Lutheran, all, just all this mix of a handful of Jewish scholars in there to help with the Old Testament. Um, really wonderful broad mix of, of people translating the, 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 the original texts. Um, but when you read it, you know, in addition to being very, very accurate, it is stunningly beautiful. I mean, it it keeps a lot, a lot of the majesty and the beauty of the uh, old King James translations, but with much more modern English that's easier to understand. Uh, so I to me, I think it's very easy to read, but it is just an absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, translation of the bible that conveys a lot of the majesty of the old translations um, and i said look for old bibles because it's there are not that many people printing that translation anymore but you may still have some bibles um, perhaps that you were given when you were younger or maybe they're your parents bibles or, or whatever but if you have them lying around you might actually still have some in that translation and it's worth reading a few chapters in it just to see what it what it how it's written and how it differs it, it's just it's really really pretty um, this is the only out, so I, I love it. Uh, I mentioned already. I'm reading the the Book of Genesis in that translation because I, I just think it's so beautiful. Um, but i I also just like literature, uh, so I, I'm aware that I'm a bit of a weirdo. Um, and if you want to buy a new one, there are a handful of people still publishing them. Um, there's some Catholic editions that are still being published because it's still popular in the Catholic Church. Um, there's at least one publisher that's still that's still printing the. Um, the The first study Bible made with that translation, which is the new, uh, which is the Oxford Annotated Bible, or the New Oxford Annotated Bible, uh, in Revised Standard Version. There, there's someone still printing that. I've got a copy here on my desk. Um, but it's it's I love it, and and I will tell you right now, if you hold the original Revised Standard Version up next to the English Standard Version, um. There are a lot of places where they are nearly identical. And it's one of the reasons I like the ESV so much, is that it's of all the modern translations, it does the best job of, of maintaining the, the literary beauty of the older translations. Uh, so check out the RSV if you want. But I highly recommend the English Standard Version. Highly recommend the New International Version, which is what many of you are already reading. So if you like it and you're happy with it, there's really no need to change. But um, I do think the ESV has a bit more beauty to it. Uh, and now having spent a ton of time talking about Bible translations and which ones you should read and should not read, um, <laughs> I've used up almost all the time for this podcast talking about that. But I, And I meant to do that actually before the end of the year. Um, but we got distracted with other things going on like Christmas. So we are in... The book of Matthew, we've read through the first four chapters, and um, there's not a whole lot to say. You're, you are almost certainly very familiar with these chapters. You've read, um, I mean, we, we kind of talked a bit about the Christmas story last year. Um, now, I, now the, the text I read on Christmas Eve was the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. Obviously, the one from Matthew is quite a bit different. Um uh, for one thing, there's no shepherds in Matthew. Uh, there are wise men. There's no shepherds in Matthew. Uh, so it's a bit different. But this is where we get this story of um, Herod slaughtering the innocents, right? the, the killing of the children, uh, Jesus' family fleeing to Egypt to avoid being killed by Herod. And the thing you'll notice about Matthew is more so than any of the other three gospels. Matthew is very, very Jewish, uh, and so the belief has long been that that Matthew, as he's writing his gospel, is is writing to a community of uh, Jewish Christians, perhaps who have been either recently converted, or even there's even a chance he's writing to a community of of Jews who are not yet Christians but who maybe are not altogether hostile to this new faith. Um, because he, I mean, I mean, you can just look through these, these first four chapters, and it's like every other paragraph he's quoting the Old Testament. Um, and, and all of the Gospels will quote the Old Testament from time to time. Um, I mean, heck, John's Gospel, the first chapter, is intentionally set up as a mirror image of the first chapter of Genesis. Um, but, but Matthew really makes heavy, heavy use of Old Testament quotations. Um, particularly the prophet Isaiah. And I believe as well some other like Ezekiel's in there, but, but he likes to use Isaiah a lot. Um, and he also has, of course, this genealogy, which is how he kicks off his gospel. And that genealogy is, of course, intended to establish that Jesus is indeed the descendant of David and is therefore the true king of Israel and the true Messiah. That's important for them to understand. And, you know, you may wonder how how, how reliable is that genealogy really. Well, I mean, look, Jesus' Jesus's disciples um, knew his mother you got to remember that when Jesus dies he tells the the disciple John to take care of Mary to to, to treat Mary as if she is his own mother um, and he does so the disciples probably i mean they knew Mary very well they would have known this by the way is probably how we get these these accounts of what happens before Jesus's birth with Mary and Joseph and the angels that visit them because Mary's living with the disciple John and, and with the and she's associating a lot with the other disciples and no doubt she's telling them stories of her life. And, and no doubt they are hearing all of these things from Mary's mouth. So she probably does actually know um, both of course her own ancestry because I believe it's I believe it's Luke's gospel that, that traces Jesus's lineage, Uh, through Mary's side of the family back to David. Um, Mary would, of course, know her own lineage. She probably wouldn't have known Joseph's lineage because people did pay quite a bit more attention to that thing back in that day than we do now. Um, So actually, the the accuracy of these lineages is probably pretty good. Uh, This is probably a a fairly reliable account of Jesus' ancestry. So you've read that you've read the visit of the wise men, which is, uh, of course, you know every pastor loves to point out that this happened, you know, probably a long time after Jesus was born, right? In all, it could have been up to two years, right? Because what does Herod do? Herod, uh, Herod kills all the male children under two years of age, and reason he must feel the need to do it every male child under the age of two is that the wise men aren't sure that Jesus was born yesterday. He, right, cause he asked them when the star appears. Um, they must have told him within the last two years. So the wise men aren't sure when Jesus is born, but they seem to think he could be as old as two. We don't really know, of course, how old Jesus is by the time the wise men come. We just know he's probably not a newborn. It does seem he's still in Bethlehem. So the timing here is weird. Because remember, Joseph's not from Bethlehem. He's from Nazareth. Um, but, of course, his wife has just had a baby. He's he got family in Bethlehem. That's his hometown. They may have decided... Um, given all the gossip floating around Nazareth about Mary, the unwed mother, uh, that staying in Bethlehem for a while was a good thing. So who knows? It's a bit murky. But the wise men come, they bring Jesus these gifts, which of course are highly, highly, highly symbolic, right? Gold is a gift you bring to a king when he's born. Uh, Frankincense is, I mean, incense is in the name. Frankincense is what they burn in the temple to God. Uh, It's also used in virtually every pagan religion of the day as holy incense in their temples. Uh, So it's symbolic of his divinity. And myrrh is a burial spice. It's used to prepare a a body that's being embalmed for burial. Uh, When Jesus is laid in the tomb, the spices they put in the cloths that they wrapped his body in would would have included myrrh. So you've got these three symbolic gifts. One representing his royalty, one his divinity, and one his impending death. Um, Yeah, imagine. Imagine getting that when your baby's born. Um, So then they flee to Egypt. They come back to Egypt after the danger has passed when Herod dies. And you might be confused, by the way, there are multiple Herods in the Bible. This Herod dies, and then there's a new Herod who will come to power, who's one of his children, who becomes king. Um, So just FYI. Uh, that's why Herod will get mentioned again later, even though it says this Herod died. There's there's two of them. He's got a son named Herod. Um, and then John the Baptist is out in the wilderness, you know, he, preaching repentance and baptizing people in the Jordan River um, until Jesus comes and he baptizes Jesus. And then after the baptism of Jesus, you have the temptation in the desert. And this, I think, is a really important episode in the life of Jesus he's going to spend 40 days and 40 nights fasting and during that time the devil is going to come and and tempt him and his response to every temptation is to quote scripture which suggests he's read it quite a bit he has it internalized it's a part of him it's a part of his worldview uh, and he knows it well enough to to and believes it deeply enough to use it to refute Satan. And then he's going to come and he's going to call his first disciples and then he's going to start healing people, performing all these signs and wonders. And then we'll get to the Sermon on the Mount which I'll be, um, well, I'm not preaching on the whole thing on Sunday. I'm going to preach on the very tail end of it. But um, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, there's a couple points I want to make. First, you look at the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are laying out the value system of the kingdom of heaven. And what does Jesus keep telling people in the Gospels, right? Um, He even says in in chapter 4, Verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, That's his kingdom, and he's saying, it's here, it's now. I am the king, I am inaugurating my kingdom, it's here. We live in the kingdom, or we're supposed to. The kingdom of heaven has begun. Jesus is king. His resurrection and ascension at the end of the gospel is his coronation as king of heaven. The universe, essentially. And so these Beatitudes are the value system of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. These are not the values of the world. These are not the values of the culture you and I live in right now. These are not American values. Meekness is not an American value. And he says, blessed are those who mourn, by the way. I would argue that's not about mourning for like the, the death of a loved one. I mean, yes, God will comfort you when you mourn, but I think he's specifically talking about people who are, who are mourning the state of Israel in Jesus' time. right? Who are mourning that the Roman oppressors are in power, and who mourn that the Jewish leadership has lost their holiness blessed are those who mourn for the state of the of the sinful fallen world who cry out for god to come and set things right i think that's what he's talking about blessed are the merciful the reality is americans don't value mercy like we think we do let me ask you this do you support the death penalty Christians support the death penalty and then turn around and talk about how they're pro-life but you can't be pro-life if you support the death penalty, now I am pro-life I think abortion is, was morally wrong but I'm going to argue that the death penalty is just as morally wrong it's not a punishment for a crime by the way it's, it's not about it, it, doesn't, it evidently demonstrably does not deter criminals if it did our crime rate would be a lot lower But there's no evidence to suggest that the death penalty deters criminal act. It certainly does not reform criminals, it just kills them. It's not an act of justice, it's an act of retribution. And I'm not at all convinced that's what Jesus wants. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. These are things we need to bear in mind. The Sermon on the Mount upends and reverses a lot of the things that we think. And then he's going to come, and in chapter 5, verse 17, he's going to say, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away Again, here, quite important. The law of the prophets, not going away. Jesus is not abolishing them. He's fulfilling them. Now, what does that mean? Well, first off, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. All of the promises God made to the people of Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. The Old Covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. Which means a couple of things. Which American, well, not American, but modern Christians all over the world don't always grasp this. It means the Jews are no longer God's chosen people. And it means Israel is no longer God's Holy Land. Now, we still call it the Holy Land. I mean, I'm going on a trip at the end of this month and it's called the Holy Land Classic. But it's not the Holy Land anymore. And the Jews are not God's chosen people anymore. So that covenant has been fulfilled, it's been satisfied in Jesus, which is why there is a new covenant. And now God's chosen people are anybody who puts their faith in Jesus. We Christians who follow Jesus are his chosen people. And now the whole earth is God's holy land. All of it is now the promised land. Now in practical terms, what does this mean for the law? Well, it means it means most of the law does not apply anymore. Not because the law was bad, but because the law has been fulfilled. We don't have to follow the ritual purity laws anymore. We don't have to follow the kosher dining laws anymore. But, and this is crucial, we still need to know what those laws were and what they're about. Because God himself has not changed. The morality that God wants his people to live with, has not changed. The rituals have changed. The need for ritual purity has changed. The need for racial purity has changed. There is, in fact, no need for that at all anymore. Jesus is quite explicit that the the kingdom of God is now a multi-ethnic, multi-racial kingdom. Get used to it. but the morality hasn't changed. And so obviously people like to start with, with uh, sexuality because that's a hot-button issue in our culture, and we should be really clear that the sexual morality of God's people is the same as it was always. God expects us to uphold the same sexual morals. And I'll be doing some teaching in person on that uh, in, in February, But but that's still in effect. Not the punishments for it. We don't need to kill anybody. We don't need to stone anybody. We don't need to shame anybody. But it's abundantly clear from the biblical text, not just from the laws, but from the book of Genesis and from the Gospels and from Paul's letters, that God's intention for human sexuality is that it should only be expressed within within the boundaries of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. That hasn't changed, but when we talk about the the morality of the law and how it is still in effect, um, that's only one very very small part of it. There is a lot in there, and, and so because I'm saying this because it's going to make everybody mad, right? Um, progressives will get mad that, that we insist that the sexual morals of the Old Testament are actually still in effect. Jesus upholds them explicitly. On by the way, uh, he he's very clear about that. So does the Apostle Paul. Um, It simply is not true that Jesus doesn't talk about it. He does. It's just he's talking to a Jewish crowd, and a Jewish crowd is not all that concerned about this because they know what the sexual morals they're supposed to be following are, and, and that is not a particular problem in the Jewish community in Jesus' day. So he doesn't need to address it much, but he does mention it. But there's more to it. There's so much more to it. Think about the way that the laws of the Old Testament The laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy specify how Israelites are supposed to treat immigrants and foreigners with with hospitality. They're supposed to welcome them in, to feed them, to care for them. Well, folks, that, that law is still in effect. We have a divine responsibility to welcome the immigrant, to welcome the foreigner, to care for them. And there is no provision in that law. There is nothing in there that talks about how they immigrated or how they got here. It just says, care for them. We have to take that seriously. Just as seriously as we take the sexual morals of the Old Testament. So we have to take those morals. There are laws in there about how we care for the world we live in. This is something people really, really struggle to grasp. There are laws in the Old Testament that dictate how you treat animals. There are laws that dictate um, how you how you plant your fields and how often you have to let your field lie fallow, meaning not plant it for a year. And that's not just about good agricultural practices. That is about being a steward of God's creation and caring for it and making sure that the soil is fertile. There are laws in there about if you have, um, if you have livestock, if you have an ox, you have to let it rest from time to time. There are laws in there about, um, you know, if, well, there's a very particular one right where if you're out in the bush and you see a mother bird sitting on her nest with eggs or with young, um, you can't kill the mother and the young and eat them all. You can shoo the mother away and eat the eggs, but you got to leave the mother alive so she can continue to reproduce. That law is not it, it, it's representative of a larger idea which is don't don't exterminate the wildlife basically don't don't harvest so much of the local wildlife for food that they can't continue to reproduce there's a law in there that says don't you can't cook a young goat in its mother's milk there's something to God that's an abomination about that and again it goes back to the idea of of treating God's creations with respect and dignity. There are laws in there about how you have to slaughter your animals in a way that is that renders them uh, unconscious as quickly as possible. The, the Jewish interpretation of uh, laws regarding livestock and, and how to kill them was that you have to the animal has to die in as painless a manner as possible. And by the way, any animal you kill for food, you have to do it right in front of a priest. One of the priests has to witness you doing it so that they can be sure that you have considered the life of the animal that you take. So you see, all these things actually still matter. We are still the stewards of God's creation. We are still responsible for being hospitable to people who are in difficult situations. We are still responsible for treating God's creation, whether it's human, animal, or plant, with dignity and respect, because it is created by God. And we have a responsibility to it. Obviously, humans are demanding of more respect and more dignity than anything else because they are made in the image of God. But all of these morals and ethics from the Old Testament, not just about our sexuality, but about how we eat, about how we treat the world we live in, about how we treat people around us, they are all still in effect. This is why we're going to read the Torah later this year. Because these things all still matter. Jesus came to fulfill the law and their prophets, and he's gonna show us exactly what that means throughout the rest of chapter five, because he's gonna go and he's gonna take all of these old testament laws and he's going to intensify them. Right, like the law against adultery. He says, you know, you, you have heard you it's written, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you so much as look at a woman who is not your wife with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. If you so much as insult your neighbor, you've committed murder. Right? He takes these things and he ramps up the intensity to an incredible degree because he's trying to help people understand, look, it's, it's the intent that matters just as much as the action. You may not be sleeping around with your wife, but if you're viewing pornography, if you are imagining yourself sleeping with someone else, you've committed adultery. You're guilty of that sin. You may not have actually killed someone, but if you have hatred in your heart for another person, you might as well have killed them. You should be getting the picture that following Jesus is not as easy as we like to think it is. Now, the good news is, he understands that. He understands our imperfections. He knows we'll fail, and he's there to forgive us. But, if anything, he takes the moral standards of the Old Testament and, and raises the bar. And as we read through the Gospels, we're going to see that Jesus raises the bar, raises the expectations of our behavior, but he also helps us Gives us the strength, the courage, and the example to follow. To make it more possible for us to actually meet those standards. He doesn't just raise the standard and then leave us on our own to, to either succeed or fail. He raises the standard and then helps us to meet it. Thanks be to God. That's it for this week, folks. Once again, Happy New Year. I'm excited to read, to go deeper into the Bible this year with you all. God bless.